Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And today we're talking about Triangle Strategy, uh, co-developed by Square Enix and ArtDink for Nintendo Switch. It was released in March of 2022, and we will be talking spoilers, so heads up if you are sensitive to that. So this is kind of the Final Fantasy Tactics Game of Thrones mashup that we've all been waiting for, yes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I read a developer interview where um, one of the designers was saying that they wanted to do a more human-focused kind of story, um, less like going out into a dungeon and beating a boss and then returning to the, to the town, but more focusing on the humans and the relationships. And they decided that a tactics game would be a better suited genre than a traditional RPG. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like, this game is definitely very interested in, in the politics of the, the kingdom of Norzelia, or rather the continent of Norzelia, um, especially in its early hours before the, you know, the game starts getting onto its main tracks in terms of what the, the primary plot and uh, drama is going to be. But... Um, you know, there's there's great characters here. There's lots of political intrigue. There's lots of uh, backstabbing and uh, courtly politics, I guess, if you will. Um, all in all, I, I was here for it. Like, I I pretty I, I pretty much enjoyed that aspect of it, even if there were <laughs> some hilarious omissions in terms of like, um, you know, areas they just didn't really want to go. Like, for instance, there's not a single like romance in this game, despite the fact that you ostensibly are playing a bet- betrothed husband and future you know wife <laughs> yeah i feel like uh that character romance it started off kind of um wooden at first and i appreciated it because it was like oh this is like a political marriage over here these people never met each other <laughs> but then, then it just when stayed they, that way <laughs> <laughs> but they started talking about how close they felt to each other so Oh, but before we get too far into that, uh, who made this game? Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know if you have any uh, history with these folks, but uh, this was a production of the producer Tomoya Asano, who was also on Bravely Default and, uh, in my experience, Octopath Traveler. So this is that 2D or HD 2D or 2D HD engine that Square Enix has that dresses up uh, pixelated characters in hd pre-rendered backgrounds and makes it look real fancy but um Mm -hmm. you know uh, i i played octopath when it came out and really enjoyed it but um was longing for more um character work you know uh listening to the characters interact and having them tell their stories side by side and things like that and and by and large this game delivered uh how about you any any other experience with this dev or the games uh, much more in the square enix side than the art tank i think i tried the octopath uh, demo, but it did not grab me, uh, so I didn't put the time into that one. Yeah, I think most people will say this about Octopath, right? Like it uh, had a really strong RPG mechanical hook, but the story just didn't come together. You know, it was eight different protagonists or you know, octo and octotagonists, if you will, hmm. and um, you know, when they did eventually come together, it just didn't really seem like the legwork was done to make them cohere as a unit. Like, if you think about the great RPG parties of all time, you know, there might be eight members of them, but the interactions between them are what make you like them. And there was just none of that in Octopath. Like, it was really all just the the mechanical 
aspect of that game that was keeping me interested at least. I did hear the battle system was very good in Octopath. Yeah, totally. And that 2D or HD 2D aesthetic is really it's it's beautiful. Like this game looks great, uh, sounds great. It's uh, really just like a it's hard to call it a graphical tour de force because it's not like cutting edge, but it's got a very strong aesthetic. Oh yeah, you can definitely be a tour de force without you know having the most ray traces going out of your <laughs> um, yeah onto your scene there. Like um, it is a very strong style. The sprites are very well done um uh, just in case anyone didn't pick up on it there are high definition sprites with a good sprite animation and they're all in a 3d world and it sounds like it doesn't work at first but it really does like uh nothing the sprites don't seem out of place at all yeah i don't i totally agree like it's uh weirdly uh, you know a mashup of two different eras of uh, graphical game design and it's blended pretty seamlessly it, it look it doesn't look out of place at all to my eye um, it just looks kind of striking and unique one thing that helps with keeping that aesthetic and ma- not making it look weird is that say this was like an rpg where your characters could walk up down left or right as well as the diagonals like they've only got the sprites animated and drawn for the diagonals there. But since mm. it's a tactical game, you're never really like going straight up and down. Or I guess there's some exploration screens for that, but that uh, is kind of a much smaller part of most of when you're seeing the graphics. It's either in cutscenes, which they control, or battle scenes, which are on a grid. Yeah, no, that's a great call out. Like the fact that they had to accommodate uh, the various modes of this game for the art style, and it looks great in, in all of them, is is really something to behold. But uh, before we go into more about the the modal summary, maybe we set up a bit about what <laughs> what this game is is bringing to the the table in terms of its setting. And this game takes place, as I mentioned up top, on the fictional continent of Norzelia, and you are following the main protagonist, Serenoa Wolfort, who is the heir of House Wolfort. Uh, If this has sounded Game of Thronesy already, then you are correct. Um, (laughs) He has a a childhood friend, Roland, who is the prince of the kingdom of Glenbrook. The younger prince. That's right, yeah, he is the second prince, so he is not directly in line to the throne. And he has a fiance, Frederica Acefrost, who is the princess from the Grand Duchy of Acefrost. Uh, and we have yet to mention one final uh, uh, continent or kingdom, or one final kingdom in this continent, which is Hyzant. Uh, they are a desert kingdom off to the east, and they are the primary source of salt in the land. Um, I think what you'll notice about uh, this game, the reason it's called Triangle Strategy, are there are three main kingdoms. We mentioned Glenbrook, which sounds like the cul-de-sac that I grew up on. Um, <laughs> Ace Frost, which is the magenta-colored Russians in the northern mountains who have iron. And uh, Hyzant, as I mentioned, the salt-hoarding desert folk who have imprisoned the Roselle as their their slaves because they are, you know, sinners or something like that. And... Um, all in all, they're sort of setting up the political intrigue of these folks uh, having just come off a uh, decades-long war uh, called the Salt Iron War. We are roughly 30 years after the peace has been established. I think this game does a very good job setting up the conflict between these three nations and how, you know, they all have something that the other one needs. Um, yeah. So wars happen and... 
um, one of the nations is never able to overwhelm the other two. Um, it seems like whenever one's about to, then, you know, one's, one nation is about to win, the other two gang up and take them back down. So this is a continent where there's just been constant warfare, um, mm-hmm. except for the last 30 years or so, and that's where this game starts, is there's a grand, peaceful unity venture being embarked on by all three nations. That's right. There is a uh, a mine discovered in the northern portion of uh, Glenbrook, which is bordering on Ace Frost and also sort of with Hyzant. Uh, so this would basically be a joint operation between the three kingdoms to bring everyone prosperity. And if you're skeptical about this, um, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe we should talk just a little bit about each of these kingdoms and, and their, you know, uh, briefly about you know what they are, what they do, what they're made up of. Um, as I mentioned, I think Ace Frost is probably the most one note of all of them. They're kind of, um, they are the Anrindian neoliberal chuds who uh, believe that everything is an absolute um, meritocracy, right? Like they don't have a, a royal line. They have people rising based on their quote unquote merits, uh, which is of course horseshit uh, because they're mm-hmm. still a duke and he still has family members and somehow they're all in power. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, the, these folks are... Uh, portrayed as the most ruthless of, of the bunch um, at least on the surface mm-hmm. there's also Glenbrook which is the kingdom that House Wolfort is in House Wolfort being one of the three quote unquote high houses in that country um, and they have a monarchy that's been sticking around for centuries and centuries and kind of have a lot of tradition behind that uh, they're kind of most the most recognizably medieval sort of things like it's very, very clearly set up as, hey, here's a feudalistic society um, going on uh, as a contrast to the other two. And the final one that uh, we had mentioned briefly earlier is Hyzant. Uh, they live in the desert. They control the source of salt and they are religious, zealots, and also communists, apparently. Um, sort of. <laughs> they, they <laughs> Mostly communist. Say, yeah, sort of. They're, everybody is equal except for some folks who are more equal. Uh, they have a a hierarchy called the the saintly seven, who I keep resisting calling the salty seven. Um, <laughs> and um, they they sort of are the ones who speak for um, the religious aspect of the um, hierarchy, which is the hierophant, who no one ever sees, but he hands down edicts for the kingdom of Hyzant to follow from on high. Mm-hmm. And you probably started playing this, and you're like, I'm suspicious of this already. <laughs> and you'd be right <laughs> you know it's kind of a funny thing like i feel like um you don't get a lot of religions these days in video games being portrayed as good, good? Yeah. yeah no <laughs> agree um broadly <laughs> speaking there's a lot of um religious skepticism in 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 video games and um i guess based on like how every world religion is these days that is probably pretty warranted I th- I think it's a culture of our or a product of our culture and times more than anything. Like I think you know you go back to actual medieval times and right or wrong or whether you believe it or not, like the people back then did believe in whatever church they were they were in. And I feel in games like this, a lot of the elite people, um, they don't actually believe the religion that they profess to belong to. 
I agree with you on that. And I think, you know, you'll find that in, in every era of every religion ever, most likely, is that you have, um, you know, folks that are true believers and actually live the um, the teachings and are great people and do great work as a result of that. And then you have uh, elites who are more craven and corrupt and are using the religion as a tool to acquiesce power. And um, religion is a... Uh, extraordinary source of power for those at its uh, highest levels. And you'll always find that ultimate power corrupts ultimately, or absolute power corrupts absolutely. Hmm. Especially in a strongly religious society. Uh, You mentioned this was kind of a Game of Thrones-esque earlier, and I certainly got that, um, I certainly got that impression early on in the game. And I think a big part of that was from these three nations not being portrayed as monolithic blocks, but each of them having their own politics and power struggles in there. And I think this game did a great job introducing very rapidly the major players, and they you'd see them start to plot against each other. And I think that, um, you know, they, it's not like uh, Glenbrook is plotting against Tyzant, but it's like people within Glenbrook are plotting against people within Glenbrook. And that kind of gave it the Game of Thrones uh, flavor for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that makes uh, a ton of sense. And, you know, uh, we didn't mention one of the the th- four main uh, characters is basically a political creature of um, Wolfort. Uh, we did not mention our our boy, um, the steward, Benedict Pascal, who is uh, <laughs> always right about everything, it turns out. Um, and he is basically the advisor to House Wolfort. He is the, the fourth main character, if you will, uh, alongside Sarah Noah, um, Frederica, and Roland. And uh, to your point, I think having sort of a vizier-like figure who in most other games would be an evil guy, um, but is just your know-everything experienced advisor um, really lends an extra dimension of like, we need to have someone who is giving Saranoa good political advice because otherwise he's going to be out on his ass trying to you know, maneuver with all of these other experienced players. They use that very effectively from a storytelling perspective at the beginning by having Benedict explain things. It's not even like exposition, but like um, Sarah Noah, who is the main character you control, uh, will witness a scene with Benedict. And then afterwards, Sarah Noah will be like, you know, I think I kind of sensed this and Benedict's, oh, you're completely right. They're planning to do that. based off of that and it kind of like um it's a good way to kind of frame the you know telling the player what has just happened and that way they can portray the intrigue with a lot of subtlety and kind of like um you know reading between the lines but they don't have to worry about players missing out on those lines when they spell them out afterwards yeah, and that's important in a video game as opposed to a TV show where you're along for the ride. In a video game, you're being asked mm. to make decisions on these these uh, points. Like, you know, in Game of Thrones, being taken by surprise by a choice that a character makes because they have a political insight that you don't is part of the excitement. Whereas in a video game, if all of a sudden, like, you were not going along for all of the hints they were dropping and all of a sudden you get a dialogue choice to be like, 
and now the, I can make this rug pull, you'd be like, well, why the hell is that dialogue choice there for me? Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, I think Benedict does a really good job of, of bringing the character up to speed, like you said. And, uh, you know, Sarah Noah, he's good, but noble. He's a smart guy. Like, he's not naive, but <laughs> he's maybe good, sometimes but your noble. players are. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I got you. But, and he, he's portrayed as like, you know, he's hasn't actually held leadership he's been groomed for it but he hasn't had to do it and he hasn't had to deal with these politics before so the Serenora benedict relationship is a great way to kind of make sure the player is realizing what's going on yeah he's rob stark you know he's like the guy that was um groomed for for actual success except he didn't die in a tragic uh, red wedding because importantly his wedding never got to happen <laughs> um spoilers for game of thrones um, but... <laughs> yeah, we, hey we said spoiler alert we didn't say for what yeah exactly Well, so this being a game, you know, we have our major mechanics in this. Uh, we have our major kind of phases that this gets divided into. Uh, and unusually for a tactics game, it is not mostly about combat. You have your cutscenes and narrative exposition. You have this kind of exploration where Serenoa will wander around the battlefield so you can kind of see what goes on where and what walls are insurmountable or, well... You can see which ones can be jumped. While he talks to people, buys items, and, of course, consults the scales of conviction. And then you finally have your combat um, when you eventually get to it. Yes, the scales of conviction. Um, we'll, we'll definitely want to talk more about that, but I, I want to stick a bit on the game's extremely modal nature, like you said. You know, the three major parts. The cutscenes, the battles, and the exploration, and... I like that this game is comfortable with letting you explore the narrative and sort of marinate in the world before you go to your next tactical battle. Uh, it lets it breathe, uh, and it uses that very well to power you know, the choices that you're going to have to make with those scales of conviction. Um, though it is at sometimes kind of hilarious how few battles there actually are in the main storyline compared to all of the other stuff in between them. <laughs> Especially compared to, like, other tactics games you might play uh where the cutscenes might be like a oh here's a five minutes of story time in between your battles here um whereas i i think it was about two hours into the game where i got to my second battle <laughs> this game definitely has an extremely slow foot forward for its first like three chapters until the first like sh shit hits the fan moment it's quite dialogue heavy <laughs> Do you know what I call that? I call that hmm. a flex by Square Enix and Art Dink. They're like, yeah, people are going to buy this game. We can tell <laughs> stories for two hours, and they're going to like it. You know, I have no idea how well this game sold, but it was definitely a flex. Because, you know, the writing and pacing of this game, while it seemed off the wall for a tactics game, it's quite fine for, like, you know, if you were thinking of the narrative parts as a visual novel, um... 
it moved along. I think those first three chapters are still a little slow uh, because everyone, you know, it's very formal, right? The first three chapters are all like introducing the kingdoms, getting all of the different nobility and important players in the various kingdoms. They're all acting like assholes with each other. Um, Introducing the four dozen main characters you got to keep track of. Yeah, it's a lot, right? Like it's disorienting and it's kind of slow and you know if you if you weren't sort of expecting that and thinking about like this is like when everyone goes to the the big castle town in game of thrones or or whatever you know it's it's very clearly you know setting up an inciting event by getting everyone in one place and having them meet each other so that they can later call back those relationships Mm -hmm. and i think it does a great job of setting those up um like It definitely started off slow, but it didn't start off boring. Uh, And I think that's the difference. Like a lesser studio could have made that a real slog to get through the first bit. But the writing was tight enough that you didn't mind it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, they made everything pretty short, too. Like maybe we should talk about how this is actually structured, because we talk about these cutscenes, and you access them uh, almost like off the overworld as if you were accessing a battle like there's a sword icon for a battle there's a little diamond icon for a story and you can kind of choose which ones you want to see and when and in what order because they're kind of in a given chapter happening simultaneously so to speak um, and some are sequential but really it's kind of like all right let's cut away over here and get a tidbit of what Roland's doing like what's he up to right now and then all right well let's cut over here to Hyzan. what are they plotting and you know you're kind of taking like a third person omniscient view of what's going on but then your primary protagonist is um Saranoa and Wolfort interestingly so, enough they make some of those side cutscenes completely optional so yeah. if mm-hmm. you were like just give me the battle just give me the battle you can skip a little bit of character development and go to what you wanted to do. I skipped no side cutscenes. <laughs> Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? Um, I mean, <laughs> I feel like that's probably useful for a new game plus, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, because, you know, we'll talk about this later, but you will need to make multiple runs at this game to see everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, maybe we should get into, you know, we... We talked a bit about the characters, but maybe let's go a little more in depth there. Uh, we talked about our, our main four, Saranoa, Benedict, who's utilitarian to a fault, Frederica, his wife, she's a bleeding heart from, from my mind, and then Roland, who's kind of just uh, along for the ride for most of the game. Like, he's trying to figure out what his part is. Yeah, they are, they have some interesting characters there. Um, important to mention is Frederica is Rosalian, who are the... Um, you know, the victims of the racism by all of society, and especially by Hyzant, who has enslaved them. Um, but, you know, she, she, her mom managed to, like, pull some strings and become consort to the Duke in Esfrost. So um, it's an interesting thread they got going on through the game where Frederica is, like, royalty, but also people are bigoted against her, too, and... There's some um, interesting scenes that happen because of that. Yeah, Frederica's fascinating. Um, uh, she's the archetypical mage of the group, so she has magic, fire magic to be exact. But all the Roselle have this pink hair, and they're, the Roselle are also the keepers of the salt. She and, as you said, and her people are oppressed by the, the Hyzant folks, except for a small contingent who are free and in uh, Wolfort territory. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, she actually also introduces a few of the other main side characters. Uh, basically, your your key party who are going to be the people that you're relying on and immediately get access to for, for combat and for everything else include the rest of um, Sarah Noah's court, Anna, the spy, Eridor, the master at arms, um, and then from Frederica's side, Gila, the healer extraordinaire, and um, finally Roland's consort or uh, squire, I guess, uh, Huet, a flying archer. Hawk rider, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love the hawk rider aspect of this game. Like, I don't know why they decided to include the eagles from Lord of the Rings in this game, but I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, especially, we'll talk about the combat later, but the flying turned out to be a huge thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hewitt was basically MVP for me. Um, but, yeah, we'll, t- we'll talk more about that later. Um, but, you know, so that that eight, uh, as we, we mentioned there, the sort of main four, and then the four side characters to my mind that's like um the the top people that you know they're the ones that help you make your decision with the um, scales of conviction but there are a total of 30 playable characters in this game um or, and that's a or bunch. people that you can have on your team yeah it's a lot so there are 22 that we have not talked about yet that can join your hmm. your house and um we're not going to talk about all of them. <laughs> well, not talk. But... We don't. I, I did not get 22 different characters during my playthrough. No, I don't no. think you can. Um, no. Outside of those main eight, I'm wondering who was your favorite character. I want to ask for both in in like the story parts and for combat. Okay. Outside of the main eight. Okay. So for combat... Um, easy choice here it was the little kid mage who had all of the he had all the different types of magic so generally speaking you have a mage in this game they get one type of magic there was one i think his name was like norbert or something like that i can't even remember his name but he was uh the son or the grandson of a great sage and he could get all the different magic uh Mm -hmm. he was pretty much inconsequential as it comes to the main story but he was a very powerful character mechanically for me Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm I think my favorite combat character was the bartender who turned out to be like a horseback healer, but having that extra maneuverability helped out a lot in combat. Mm -hmm. And I think she might've been my favorite story side character too. Yeah, because she was always present in the camp and she would have interesting things to say uh, to all the different people that especially Eridor I feel like she and Eridor really hit it off Um, Eridor is a grade A drunk (laughs) yeah as far as uh, the people who I thought had a a really good uh, story impact boy um, the main characters they they really focused in on on them Um, trying to think of who outside of that group I did you um, get the ice mage from high I did yeah, yeah, Cor- Cordelio or, or whatever his name was. Um, I liked the re- the like back and forth between him and Eridor. Hmm, tell me more. Like the the ice mage, like he joined your party because his research was forbidden by the government in Hyzant, and he wanted to fight for you so he could research instead. And um, like Eridor, bachelor of arms, likes a good pint of ale. Um, very. You know, not not the most like smart character, but him talking <laughs> with uh, Cordelio or what whatever his name is, um, and like 
the one trying to explain his research to Eridor while Eridor's trying to get him drunk. Was, uh, <laughs> there were some good cutscenes in there. Yeah, the the mage that I was talking about, his name was Narv. Um, that's why I couldn't remember his name, because it's a pretty nondescript name. Narv. Sounds like Marv. <laughs> it's the guy from Home Alone or something like that. Uh, Corentin is the, the ice mage. And yeah, hmm. he, he did have a, an interesting story. The, one, the guy that I um, think had the best sort of non- he was good in battle too, but he had a lot, a lot of really good scenes outside of battle. Was Maxwell, um, the the masked spearman, uh, the dawn spear, if you will, of um, Glenbrook. You know, he was basically one of the heroes of the Salt Iron War from thirty years ago. He trained Roland, and then eventually, if you play your cards right, he joins your group. And um, he had some really interesting scenes with Roland throughout the course of the the game, and I enjoyed having him in the in the group. Oh yeah, he died for me, so <laughs> I got none Oops. of those scenes. Oh well. <laughs> I guess it would have um, been interesting had he lived. It would have. It would have been very interesting. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I one final thing about the characters in this game that I want to call out is all of them have a very lovingly rendered, hand drawn portrait, which immediately tells you if they're evil or not. Um, <laughs> you can basically just tell by the way their eyebrows and scowl or grin are drawn, uh, whether they are noble or evil. Well, as you know, art reveals the soul. Yes. <laughs> I can't wait to have my portrait drawn. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, you you mentioned um, uh, when you were talking about Hasabara, the, um, the the encampment and the bar there. You know, I feel like uh, you, this game had a really good sort of home base that slowly grew and had more people added to it as you got there. But also importantly, that was where you got to um, upgrade your characters and um, do some uh, light shopping if you had the resources. Yeah, I liked uh, this game had a very interesting upgrade system. You had to make choices between do I want to upgrade the character class or upgrade their weapon? Um, I can't afford to do both. Uh, They also had the really interesting bit about the mental battles, the training battles. Yeah, I really liked this. Like, basically, uh, Saranoa could just enter his mind palace and bring some of his friends friends along with him and um, allow them to level up somehow without ever having to go into actual combat. Uh, so either he's a really good teacher or I don't know. <laughs> Find some, like, spare uh, crafting materials along the way. I like to think that he's just taking them out into the woods behind the encampment and saying, like, all right, we're going to go fight with sticks, just like we did when we were kids. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe you find some cool materials while you're doing that. Um, yeah. But what I what I really did like about this mental mock battle thing and this game's battles in general is regardless of whether you won or not, or if you lived or died, you were accruing experience throughout the entire thing, and it saved. But the fact that you used... Um, items did not save in mental mock battles. So you could go in and escape by the skin of your teeth using all of the stuff in your inventory. And then if you didn't win, it would be no harm, no foul. You keep the experience, you keep the items. Um, And I really, I like that aspect. I think the game was very generous and forgiving on that front with that. Actually, I think this was like almost the perfect difficulty 
fine-tuning that you could do, uh, not just in the mental battles, but in the real battles in um, uh, during the storyline, during the campaign. If you lost, you could restart the battle right away, but keeping the experience that, that your units gained um, during the battle that you lost. I wish I knew about this earlier, because there were... I probably threw away six or seven battles because I'm like, oh, it's a lost cause now. I'm down to my last three characters. They've still got seven or eight. I'm not going to win. I'm just going to restart now. But had I stayed through that, that would have made subsequent battles much easier. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I feel like once I told you about that, you were like, oh, I should I should just see those out. <laughs> now, they mention it in the loading screens. Um, but I did not see that loading screen until after you told me about this. Yeah, I thought it was pretty elegant too, you know, like the ability to um, always be making progress, even if you're losing, you know, losing is also a learning experience. Um, you know, you can't really get better unless you fail at something. Oh, yeah, especially in a tactical game like this, uh, you do a battle the first time and you don't know what's coming. But the second time around, not only are your characters probably a level or maybe two higher, also you know where the reinforcements are coming, what tricks the enemy has up the sleeve, where the trouble parts are. There were quite a few times where I'm like, well, this time I'm not going to rush everybody out <laughs> into the open and I'll let the enemy come to me. And that worked a lot better the second time around. Yeah, I think it's also worth um, thinking about which characters you're bringing to a given engagement, because we didn't mention this when we were talking about the initial characters, but every character is unique and has their own unique class and abilities. There's no like generic fighter or mage. Every single character is bespoke in this game, you know, down to... Oh, good point. Yeah, that is very key. You can't just... It's not like Final Fantasy Tactics where, you know, you get um, five male soldiers, five female soldiers, and you can kind of spec them out as, as you will and progress them along any given path at any given time. No, no, no. Frederica's always a fire mage, and she's always going to progress into, you know, a pyromancer and then to blah, blah, blah. And um, that is extremely key. And you can only bring a certain amount of people to a given battle. So you are choosing a person for their skills when you bring them into battle. Uh, you're not just choosing Frederica the fighter, you're choosing Frederica the mage. <laughs> I kind of like that better. It makes them feel like they have more personality and they're absolutely they're much less like, oh, I don't know, what do you want me to be? Yeah, no, I, I agree. The, the fact that each character is unique and has their own quote-unquote build that's pretty much decided for them, um, I like. It avoids analysis paralysis, and it still allows you to make meaningful decisions about... Um, how you upgrade them, and who you're upgrading. Um, you know, it's just removing the added calculus of, well, do I make Greg a mage or Theodore the mage? And then, mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, no, this is this guy's the mage. If you're going to have a mage, it's, it's <laughs> Frederica, okay? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that does make it easier in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know you got to have a mage. You might as well just make take that decision out of the, the picture and, you know... Um, then explore the variety within the mage archetype rather than, you know, starting from an absolutely blank slate.
Well, speaking of exploration. Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's talk about the other one of the other modes of this game. Um, before you're ever even entering a battlefield and deciding who you're deploying to it, a lot of times you get to explore it. I think every mission had you explore before you did anything. And even when your guys are like, we're sneaking into the palace now, nobody knows we're around. Quick, let's do a quick exploration and see what everyone finds. Let's split up, <laughs> gang. Yes, Scooby-Doo clue-finding time. And um, I really I, I enjoyed these exploration phases, although sometimes it was like, all right, this is a bit of a weird pacing decision right here but you know the light puzzling that they had you do and finding the facts that could help you bolster your case in the decision phase especially i thought was a really valuable addition to the game Um, Mm -hmm. it it definitely helps pad out some of the lived in aspects of the world too you know you get to talk to villagers and um uh, various members of the court that of whatever castle you're in to sort of hear what's going on in the broader world it did make the world feel a lot more lived in, um, because otherwise the only times you'd be walking around were during combat. Like during the cutscenes, you don't control anybody over there. So this was kind of like the only times you really control your Sarah Noah as the main character, and he's walking around and talking and interacting with people, both party members and random townsfolk. That's right. So you're able to make some dialogue choices and help color who your Serenoa is. Is he uh, calculating and um, uh, very utilitarian, or is he also very empathetic and compassionate, like Frederica, perhaps? Um, it's a it's a nice way of helping you get to the point where you're starting to make uh, sense of the game's underlying triangle strategy ethics system you're coloring Serenoa's convictions of morality utility and freedom this game does have an ethic system that we've alluded to before and this ethical system is kind of based up again on a triangle a three-pointed thing where there's um, you can make decisions dial and dialogue choices and a whole bunch of other um incidental things that either move you higher on the morality track, the utility track, or the freedom track. And these tracks are uh, personified in your main characters of morality being um, Frederica, utility being Benedict, and I'm sorry, utility, I don't know, which, which, yeah. how, how do Util- you break that down? Util- yeah, utility being Benedict, and hmm. Uh, freedom or liberty being Roland. The interesting thing, though, I think about this ethical system is one: it's not are you good or evil. It's <laughs> like, hey, here are some actual choices you have to make. Um, I don't know how you played it, but my Serenoa was always kind of like in the middle, taking things by a case by case basis. I wasn't trying to min max my ethics at all. <laughs> so my. My Serenoa, usually, he was a wife guy, so he usually sided with uh, Frederica and uh, was pretty moral. Uh, he was a morality bro. Uh, so, you know, he did things like spare spare enemies, and um, he was always siding with the, the morality side of things. Like you said, I don't think any of this is like universal good, universal bad, but 
Um, morality generally is like, I'm going to act like a saint. Utility is I'm going to do what's most practical. And liberty is I'm going to do whatever's going to let me do what I want. <laughs> um, or yeah, you know, al- allow me the most choice or allow the most choice of my constituents. Um, now, I think that freedom thing, you're taking it like Ace Frost, I think is presented as like a corrupted version of freedom where like freedom means correct. I get to do what I want. Uh, but they also contrast Glenbrook to Ace Frost, and they're like, you know, in um, in Ace Frost, then someone who's good at their job, you know, they can rise up through the ranks, whereas they don't have that option at all in Glenbrook. So, you know, there's, yeah. it's not all like Ayn, Ayn Rand freedom kind of thing, you know I what I mean? I don't think there's a clear mapping of the three points of the triangle onto the kingdoms. I think it's pretty clear that Benedict is utility- Frederica's morality and Roland is liberty. Um, but that's yeah. just because of those are always the choices that they are representing when you go to the scales of conviction, which is <laughs> something we should um, we should talk about because all of these sort of hidden, opaque uh, points that you're gaining towards one of these three convictions um, allows you to make choices when you have to make a decision at the scales of conviction. Scales of Conviction was, I think, a great mechanic and a very unique one as well. Um, what happens is House Wolfert apparently has this tradition of whenever there is a difficult decision to be made, whoever's in charge just asks everyone else, hey, what do you want to do? Uh, <laughs> and they vote on what they should do. Uh, so often there's like a binary choice, like... Um, do we ha- do we hand over Prince Roland to the enemy, or do we keep him shelter and resist, or do we um, smuggle salt up to the mountains, or do we right. turn in the smuggler? Um, so when this happens, you have your seven other main party members who cast a vote for one decision or the other, and. Mm-hmm. You can use the evidence you find during the exploration phase to try to influence them one way or another, because you can see how they're going to vote before the voting happens. But the interesting thing is, whatever the party chooses, you're stuck with that decision. That's right. You, as Saranoa, don't have a vote. Importantly, you can, as as Josh said, try and um, influence the various people in your group to change their vote. Some of them are going to be more accepting than others. Some will respond better to evidence against their beliefs than others. But by and large, you're going to be on the path that you came in with, right? If you are doing a heavy morality play, um, you're not going to be able to suddenly decide to smuggle the salt. You're too good for that. You're too much of a goody two-shoes. <laughs> that is exactly exactly where I ended up on my playthrough. I wanted to smuggle that salt, but I was too lame to do it. Um, so, <laughs> so I guess uh, the decision was made for me, unfortunately, and uh, I thought that was a really interesting choice. One of the interesting things with this morality system, with this ethics system, is that whenever you make a decision that increases one of your ethics um, one of your ethics tracks you see a little pop-up in the top right that's like Sarah Noah's convictions have been strengthened mm-hmm. and this pops up at the obvious times when you're like I'm going to spare these 
captives we just beat because I'm a noble person. Um, and you're like, okay, I see where that came from. But then it pops up other times, like when you use an item in battle. And it's like your mm-hmm. convictions have been strengthened. And you're like, really? What did I Why? do? <laughs> what did I do? Or when you like find a note in someone's bookshelf or things like that. Uh, I think they had an opacity to the ethical system and what caused what to happen. Um, although in a new game of plus, they reveal to you what actions cause what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is important that it's you don't know what your your tallies are in each of these three on the first playthrough, but you can see it all on the second. Um, this reminds me a lot of the chaos frame in uh, you know everybody's favorite game I allude to, but no one's ever played Ogre Battle sixty four. <laughs> Man, when are we doing a pod on that? <laughs> oh, it's on the bucket list. <clears throat> but um, yeah, I uh, I thought it was pretty neat the way they hid the information from you, and then you could sort of find out in media res that you weren't cool enough to smuggle the salt or whatever, or you couldn't convince people to take the utilitarian route because um, that just wasn't in your character. Um, It also is interestingly affecting the types of characters that join you. You mentioned that Maxwell didn't join you. Um, Well, he joined me because I had high enough scores, apparently, in morality and liberty slash freedom. I can't remember which of the two it actually is. But um, a lot of character unlocks are keyed on... Um, what scores you have in in one of these three aspects. So it's doing more than just letting you affect the story. It's affecting who you're able to bring into battle and how you're able to tackle the scenario that's put in front of you. I think the story affecting is a really interesting thing too. Um, You mentioned you weren't able to smuggle the salt. Uh, For me, it was kind of like a larger decision. Like um, when... We were attacking the capital of Glenbrook again, which had been captured by Ace Frost at that time. Um, there were three plans proposed. One of them was to like sneak in through a hidden passage and try to, uh, you know, take over the castle without anyone um, learn- knowing. Another one was to like take out all the ships in the harbor so that, you know, Ace Frost wouldn't be able to get supplies or anything. And Benedict had this dumbass plan to flood the entire <laughs> capital city so there'd be less soldiers to fight. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can see you like sitting there twiddling your fingers together like some megalomaniac, mad scientist, <laughs> evil genius guy. And that ended up being the way that my party went. We destroyed the capital city for a mar- <laughs> to avoid a marginal battle. And I'm like, dude, I could take these people. I haven't lost a battle yet, eventually. <laughs> yep. No, um, you know, say what you want about Benedict, but he is going to, he's going to get his. Um, <laughs> but as I said before, I thought it was super interesting that they would just straight lock you out of choices that weren't in your chosen character archetype based on how you've been acting. Um, you know, the the scales of conviction, which by the way, is just what this game should have been called. Triangle <laughs> strategy. <laughs> um the skills of conviction aren't magical. They're not like some special uh, thing that only House Wolford has. They're just like a, a mix between a relic and a decision-making tool. Um, you know, everyone votes. You can sway the votes. This, the skills are just letting you see the results of what everyone's thinking. I agree. Uh, but as a game mechanic, I feel like it's been very, um, it was a very interesting one. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Totally. 
Well, it's been a little while. Maybe um, maybe we talk about combat next. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, you know, this this game that's ostensibly a, uh, a Final Fantasy Tactics successor does in fact have combat in it. Um, <laughs> so um, You just got to wait a little while before you get to it. Yeah, that's why we, uh, you know, 45 or so minutes into this podcast are finally going to talk about the combat. Um, you will get to combat only slightly faster in the actual game. Um, <laughs> so uh, we, we alluded to this earlier, but this is, generally speaking, um, a square, isometrically uh, set up grid, you know, a la Final Fantasy Tactics. You know, you're moving on the diagonals. Everything's a square. Um, you have uh, melee attacks, ranged attacks, magic attacks. Uh, but one interesting wrinkle is that if you are attacking from a flanking position, uh, or rather you are flanking an enemy and they have someone on the opposite side of them, you get an extra bonus hit. So if I'm attacking from the front and Benedict is behind the character, Benedict will get an extra hit um, as I attack uh, because he is flanking them. I actually think that's the kind of key mechanic from which everything else in the combat stems from is Mm -hmm. that flanking. Um, Being able to get an extra attack in on an enemy... Uh, they keep the movement in this game small. Like, your characters can move three, maybe four spaces. If they have yep. a horse, they can go five. Um, but that means that the positioning is very kind of, like, fine-tuned. You know, like, if you play a small, small numbers um, battle game, like Advanced Wars, it's all about making sure you're in the position to attack correctly so that you can take out the enemy uh likewise over here with the movement uh, it keeps everything very tight with how you gotta move your people and how you've gotta expect the enemy to move too i think it's also super important how they utilize height and terrain in these battles um Mm. there's a lot of verticality in these maps generally speaking and assessing the battlefield and not just like rushing everyone towards the enemy is super key um i remember the fight in the rosellen village um they initially have you place your characters in two separate areas and what i realized is if you actually follow what they have uh, are asking you to do in the character placement and divide it evenly you're screwed Uh, So what I ended up doing is placing everyone I possibly could on one side and then only my most mobile characters on the other side and rushing them over to solidify my forces on one position rather than having them divided. And that ended up being key. Um, This game's really asking you to, like, think critically about what position you're trying to to take when you engage the enemy. Because if you're just going one-to-one, you will lose. Like, you are relatively regularly outmatched in this game. Mm-hmm. outmatched and outnumbered too you really have to take advantage of everything you can of height you get bonuses for attacking from height in this mm-hmm. game uh you got to take advantage of the positioning and make sure you have favorable matchups and are able to bring down on the enemy overwhelming force on their people rushing out ahead rather than leaving your people out stra- as stragglers to get picked off yeah, 
And this combat is, you know, it's difficult. It's very well balanced, and you are meant to lose characters in every fight. Um, importantly, <laughs> unlike Fire Emblem, you will not uh, experience permadeath in this game, right? If someone falls mid-battle, roll with it. You, you're you going to lose people. <laughs> Except for Maxwell, apparently. He just died <laughs> once, and that was it. Well, that's because he went up against that badass general lady, and she kills for keeps. Um, <laughs> Alvora, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, how could I forget Alvora? Um, but uh, eventually, apparently, you can recruit her, but I was not able to do that. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, as, as you mentioned, Josh, there's also decisions that you can make in battles, uh, you know, like, say, flooding an entire capital or something like that. But one that comes to mind for me when you're defending House Wolfort, um, from what I recall, you're given an option to burn the houses to kill General Avora. And I managed to not do it um, by killing everyone off and then having just Hewett versus Alvora at the very end. And I just parked Hewett on a roof and spent 45 minutes sniping Alvora. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and this game rewards that kind of behavior, apparently, because uh, I, I did end up winning that battle. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Now, it does ask you to do kind of like these choices in battle sometimes. There's a lot of variety in the battles, both in terms of the terrain you're coming across, and sometimes there's these interactable things like set this house on fire uh, that you can hmm. choose to do or not that have effects in the story later on. Yeah, if you burn those houses down, you better believe you're going to be coming back three, four, five more times a few hours down the road, and they're going to be like... Thanks for defending the castle and all, but um, did you have to burn my house? Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, the game doesn't let you forget the ramifications of your decisions in the heat of battle, um, which I think is both realistic to the, you know, to the extent that a game like this is realistic about combat and its uh, repercussions, but also, you know, helps make the world feel realistic and lived in. I think so. Like, when your decisions have consequences, and it's not just a one-off thing, but something you return to time after mm-hmm. time, it makes it feel more weighty. Weighty, for sure. The fact that we talked about, um, you know, making sure you're using elevation, and the fact that we also have uh, characters, some of which can fly, some of which just have greater vertical uh, maneuverability than the than others see Anna the spy who gets a, a move that basically lets her jump infinite amount of uh, squares into the air uh, God bless her she really mm-hmm. carried a lot of <laughs> a lot of weight for my my team <laughs> but yeah I think um, one of the crowning achievements of this game's tactical battles for me was the map design it really was just always extremely well balanced and interesting and even when you were revisiting maps you know it was like oh i remember this now i know how to approach this map i remember what the strong portions to you know hold were and um it always felt fresh like rather than just having you know four dozen different somewhat randomly generated maps that can be easily interchanged they had maybe a dozen maps and they were all a plus excellent maps Yeah, there were a lot of maps that really, like, focused on teaching or exploiting a particular advantage in height or movement. Uh, This game did have really good level design for the combat. I would would say that I prefer this 
uh, mode of design when it comes to scenarios in, in tactics games over almost any other. You know, make it bespoke, make it a small number of things, but make sure they're all great. Oh, if you remember um, our Iconfell podcast way back, uh, was mm. originally supposed to be a tactics game. But then the designer realized, like, you know, I can't make interesting tactical rooms look like actual rooms here. So I'm just going to make it an RPG instead. Totally switched genres. Yeah, and it makes sense. Like, you know, um, uh, utilize the genre that you've chosen uh, for what you're trying to accomplish with the game. Uh, As you mentioned, like, this game made sense as a tactics game because it wanted to delve into character interactions and politics. Politics lends itself to you know, wars and war making, which lends itself to tactics. Um, all in all, the interplay of the genre, the themes, and the mechanics is going to make the game good. <laughs> you know, if, if all those things are aligned to a goal, uh, you're going to you're gonna have a, a good experience on your hands. Well, speaking of politics, there's politics between nations, and there's politics between individuals, too. And yeah. <laughs> I think one of the cool parts of of this storyline was there is a key decision point you have to make towards the end where you have your three ethical avatars, Frederica, Benedict, and Roland, all presenting different courses of action on a plan. And whichever one you're going to choose, you're going to lose one of the other characters because they will disagree with you so strongly. Yeah, I'll, some of these seemed better than others to me. Like, you know, Roland suddenly being okay with Roselle being chattel slaves didn't seem really uh, that great to me. Um, and Roland, ne- <laughs> Roland needs to get a backbone is what he needs to get. <laughs> you know, it's so funny, though, because I chose against him and he ended up being like, oh, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was just being an idiot, uh, which is true. But then, you know, Benedict says like, uh, yo, we got to ally with Ace Frost if we want um, any chance of coming out of this. OK. And uh, by the way, we also have to betray your best bud Roland in the in the process saying he's not fit to rule. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. it just, it all, it, it definitely puts you in a rough place because it, it directly pits um, you against uh, all of the other three of your primary advisors. You know, Frederica basically says, let's free the Roselle um, to spite Hyzant, but that basically dooms your um, house Wolfort to being destroyed utterly. So, it's um it's a tough choice that they have you you know i i have in my notes here instances of shit hitting the fan and there's like three different instances of shit hitting the fan that you then have to recover from throughout the game early on it's the invasion of glenbrook and this late game one uh where you're forced forced to make this decision like this very reminiscent of the game of thrones like cliffhanger ending to an episode to me hmm yeah i feel like because they needed to have one character like strike out against you, um, it made some of those some of the prior storytelling decisions make sense. Like uh, maybe a chapter or two before this happens, you find out that Sarah Noah is actually of the royal bloodline. Like yeah. he could throw his <laughs> claim out the there own, to become yeah. king. And when I first saw this, I'm like why the hell are they doing this? This is totally unnecessary. Um, (laughs) But then you get to this decision point where Benedict wants you to claim the throne of Glenbrook. 
Ah, because, you know, he wants to attack Hyzant while Roland wants to ally with him. And you're like, okay, that's what this was leading up to. That was a that's a good enough payoff that it didn't make sense at the time, but it's a you know, it pays off in the end. It led to an interesting choice. Um, although I think the interesting thing about that choice is it's an illusion of a choice. Because odds are if you've played this game and you're not on New Game Plus, only one of these is going to be possible for you. Um, you're just not going to have the numbers in um, various uh, parts of the triangle, you know, the utility, morality, liberty triangle to uh, get everyone to agree with your vision of how this should work out. So you're going to side with one of them and you're going to see the repercussions. So I was playing more close to the middle of the triangle than you were, perhaps, because I lost the, you know, I lost to Benedict um, back when we were attacking the capital, but this time I was able to convince people to free the Roselle and go with Frederica. Well, yeah, that's what I did too. That was my ending was um, uh, leave leave Norzelia with Frederica. Um, so you you did the same thing. We you escaped to the south. That's right. Okay, yeah. So neither of us did the golden path. <laughs> So there is a golden path that you can take. This requires you to make very specific choices in terms of your mission routes you take with the scales of conviction before. Um, It requires you not to be too heavy, I think, to any of the three ethics. But if you have followed the specific sequence of events to this point, then you can reject the scales of conviction at this point and forge your own path. And they make a point of this, like, I'm not going to be bound by the scales of conviction anymore. We are going to forge our own destiny, which is an interesting thing because, to me, this game has kind of been personified by the scales of conviction up to this point. And the point of the game was not these ethics or having to choose between them. It was finding the balance between them and, you know, not being beholden to any particular ethic. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I had no idea about that, like how the Golden Path actually played out with regards to the scales. Um, I guess it makes sense. I saw the 10-hour Let's Play of the Golden Path route. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's actually really interesting, and I'm glad you, you brought that, um, because I, you know, obviously, like, the scales of conviction to me are, are pretty central to this game and, like, why it's interesting and why it's interesting about the choices that you have made, and then it deciding to sort of turn that on its head at the last minute is, like kind of brilliant um i'm i'm definitely here for it but uh i didn't get that route unfortunately it sounds like you didn't either but i'm glad you experienced it at least by uh, (laughs) someone else (laughs) the kind of message that i think it was maybe going for if we can say this game has a message is that you can't blindly follow an ethic um Hmm. if you do you're going to end up with a subpar outcome like none of the three outcomes you could choose following the scales of conviction ended up with say a wedding between Sarah Noah and Frederica which is how the mm-hmm. golden path ends 
Yeah, I think morality comes closest, but... Um, <laughs> oh, you know, uh, Sarah Noah's dead at the end of that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work out so well. Um, I'm just trying to justify, justify my decisions, which really what this game is a, an exercise in uh, at the end of the day. <laughs> well, I think those three decisions they gave you, they were all like subpar decisions. You know, the three decisions were like, oh, just give into religious fanaticism and follow Hyzant, or, you know... Um, usurp your best friend from the throne and ally with Ace Frost and take out Hyzant, or rescue the Rosella and get the hell out of Dodge chasing a, le- a legend. Like, none of those was like a solid plan to me. I was picking from three mediocre options. No, I agree. Um, I mean, given all of what we know about um, Norzelia as a continent and a place that you'd have to live in. Um, I think the get the fuck out is probably the most <laughs> reasonable <laughs> one. But uh, no, I, I hear you. I'm glad that the Golden Path actually did have a more hopeful and, and final decision uh, that it allowed you to, to take. Oh, uh, but if you did take the Golden Path, nobody was racist after you won. <laughs> oh, okay. You cool. solved well, racism <laughs> too. Damn. No, I, I do feel... I feel like the um, the storytelling got less subtle as the game went on. And I think part of that is, like we talked about, how it had the factions within the countries, kind of like Game of Thrones at the beginning. Uh, but they killed off a lot of those factions by the time you were five or six hours in. And I feel that, that made, they're like, okay, here's the evil guys now. Yeah, <clears throat> no, it's definitely true. They um, like some people definitely stepped into the evil limelight as as the game went on. Um, mm-hmm. They really came into their own as assholes, um, <laughs> and some of the lesser assholes just died, which is you know I guess sort of how it goes. Um, but yeah, as you're <laughs> as you're witnessing all of these uh, events and battles, um, the game does a pretty awesome job of underscoring it with a fantastic score. Um, Akira Senju, who works mostly in anime, uh, was the composer for this soundtrack. Uh, he's famous for Full Metal Alchemist, among other things. Oh. And um, yeah, I think I really enjoyed this score, and I really liked how dynamic it was. Like, if you were winning a battle, all of a sudden it would change, you know, uh, tempo and timber, and you'd, he'd be hearing the victorious version of the song. Or if you were on the ropes, you'd be hearing the, uh, oh shit, things are, are starting to go south version of the, of the track. It would not surprise you to find out I did not notice that. But you did enjoy the soundtrack. I really did. <laughs> yeah. There are some jams over there, like some really good orchestral themes where you can just feel the emotions swelling. Yeah. Like I said, I think the, the way this game not only, you know, one, they're great compositions, but two... Um, they reacted to what was happening on the screen so superbly, especially mid-battle, where like a track would start, and you know once you got down to five characters left of your initial ten, um, you know a tone shift would happen, or once the, there were only two enemies left and they were on the run, it would shift into the the victory theme version. Um, hmm. You know it it was really really well done. Um, on the other side of the sound uh, for this game, the voice acting. Um, this is strangely and i was surprised by this a fully voice acted game tons of text in this game tons of cutscenes, all of it fully voiced um i don't know did you uh have any strong thoughts did you play it in english or japanese 
I played it in English. I didn't know Japanese was an option. It was, and from what I hear, that was probably the way to go. <laughs> um, I thought the voice acting on the US, the English side was serviceable, but I found it kind of hilarious that everyone just had a vanilla America Midwest accent. Like there wasn't so much as an accent for even like the Desert Kingdom or Ace Frost. You know, everyone was just down the middle Midwestern newscaster voice. <laughs> <laughs> the Mid-American accent. Yeah, basically. And and now over in Hyzant, uh, we see you know uh it's just it was strange to me how like despite the fact they put all this effort into voice acting what had to have been an incredibly gigantic script um there wasn't a little more attention paid to the characterization of these um these factions because obviously they're also different culturally right like you cross into Hyzant and immediately everyone's in um you know loose fitting desert garbs and turbans and yet they're all talking the same exact language in the exact same Hmm. accent (laughs) you know i did not think about that when i was going through it yeah i don't know i just it struck me as odd um but i don't know that was just my my quick aside on on vo like i'm glad it was there i think the voice acting generally speaking was serviceable and added to the experience but um if you're going to put that much effort into vo maybe think a little bit more about how you want your actors to portray the characters not just in the vo but the dialogue itself i feel like they were going for a kind of lofty dialogue um where people use certain tones of respect when talking with each other it was courtly very courtly yeah that's a good way to put it mm-hmm. like and, i'm about to yeah. kill you but also hats off to you <laughs> it will be my honor to destroy your regal personage <laughs> <laughs> personage um, is probably the best word to describe it or the word most indicative of it indeed well now that we've uh we've thoroughly beaten that horse um i feel that um we can mount our own steeds and ride off into a three-word review approach the scales of conviction <laughs> Fittingly, my three-word review is, my convictions grow. Triangle Strategy is an extremely competent tactics game with a solid political intrigue storyline, engaging battle mechanics, and a lived-in world. The one odd thing about that world, and for that matter the game, however, were the scales. The scales of conviction are initially shown as a decision-making apparatus, but that kind of misses the point. You've already made the decisions up to that point and chosen dialogues that have led you down the path you're likely to take. Hence, the convictions grow messages. Now, you need to see that path through to its completion. It can be frustrating when you're not in control of everything all the time, and as such, being unable to sway a team member or uh, go down the path you want to see. But it's actually a feature of this game. It's intentional. Let your convictions be strengthened by the resolve of your actions, and try not to hand-wave any genocides in the process. Triangle Strategy is a step in the right direction after Octopath for this team, from my perspective, We're seeing more story, more character interactions, and more meaningful player interactions determining the outcome. If they stay on this trajectory, I have a strong conviction that I'll be picking up their next title. Very nice. Very nice. My three-word review is speeches and swordplay. Triangle Strategy is an interesting game. It's almost absurdly slow-paced, and an hour or more can pass between battles. 
The battles themselves are slow and staid affairs with small numbers maneuver and tactics ruling the day. At first, I thought the slow pace detracted from the game. I was hungry to get in there and bust some heads in a tactical fashion. But the story's strong start kept me interested until I could appreciate the out-of-the-ordinary pacing in both battles and cutscene. The one strike I have against the game is that the story lost subtlety and nuance as it played out. Still, this that flaw hardly outweighs this otherwise finely crafted game on my scales of conclusion. Nice. I would have to agree. Uh, definitely a great experience, uh, a long one, uh, one of the longer ones we've probably done for this cast, honestly. Um, but I'm glad we did it. Uh, it was it was great to talk about. Out of the ordinary, for sure. For it. I mean, what kind of tactics game spends less than half the time in a battle? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, t- uh, one about speeches and swordplay, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway. I uh, I had a blast talking about this game, and I want to say to you out there, thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. If you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care and keep on strengthening your convictions. As usual for us. Like the game. (laughs) (laughs) Like the game, this podcast went long. (laughs) Before we finish this podcast, I feel we should have another conversation, perhaps at a banquet of some sort. At any rate, though, I have to say, uh, just like Game of Thrones, this game definitely is setting itself up for a robust prequel. There is so many things they allude to and are in the glossary that you can read about that i'm like oh well they, they just have a second game written right here already mm-hmm. um with like lady Orlay, frederica's mother and simone um uh, you know the um Serenoa's father and the king of glenbrook and the origin of the hierophant there's just there's plenty of stuff here like this is a really well crafted world and i was always excited to learn more about it and i could see if they don't do a sequel to this game a prequel could be a thing oh i agree that could be a good prequel over there i feel like it's harder to make a sequel after this with all the choices you give a player that's always an interesting thing like if you give a player a choice of endings how do you make one canonical yeah you just you choose the best one i guess (laughs) (laughs) i mean they don't call it the golden path for nothing That's right. It has to be the golden path that they choose, and then something will fuck up the balance once again in, say, another 30 years, as it always (laughs) does. Um, Or, you know, they go the Elder Scrolls route and make them all canonical and break the dragon. There you go. That's always one way to get some lore going on. But speaking of messed up, 
How about that name? Oh man, like I said, like Triangle Strat. This is why you don't ever make a project, you know, prototype or in- internal name into something you share with the public because it catches on and then you're stuck with it. And this has got to be one of the all-time worst. We got stuck with this name names ever. Oh, they're very much stuck with it, but it was very much intentional too. Uh, I don't the- understand it. The head or lead designer said that he, his goal in naming a game was to give it a very unusual name using very normal words, like no no tales of Astorlias or anything like that, uh, but just using regular words in a way they aren't normally used. Uh, for example, bravely default. Mm. Octopath Traveler, although Octopath isn't a real word, and then Triangle Strategy. Hmm. Like, they're memorable combinations, although I don't think any of them are great names. (laughs) I mean, they're at least... They all have Googleable namespaces, and they're not hard to pronounce. So, you're winning on that (laughs) All of them had websites available. (laughs) <laughs> and if that's not the mark a mark of a great name, I don't know what is. <laughs> Just ask anyone who's ever tried to name a podcast. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs>